So it is my privilege this morning to introduce Ryan Baker, who is our guest pastor this morning. He is a New England native, born in Massachusetts, now lives in Rhode Island. For those of us from Texas, that's kind of like being born in Dallas and then moving to Fort Worth. <laughs> so just, just to give you a little perspective on this, he has degrees from Assumption College and also from the University of Rhode Island. He met Katie Haley, who you may know as the daughter of Kathy Haley, who was our church secretary for a few years. He met Katie when he was on a trip to Bracca Church in Houston. And they had a very lengthy courtship. I think it was about a week later he proposed to her. (laughs) So they didn't get married for another year, so there was a gestation period there. They now have two children. Did you notice that segue? Was that? All right. They now have two children. Daniel is one and Hannah is the other. That, of course, is why Kathy Haley is no longer here. She moved up to Rhode Island to be near her grandkids, which I'm sure mom and dad are very happy about, and I'm sure Kathy is very happy about as well. Our loss, their gain. So no wonder she did that. Uh, Ryan is currently pursuing a master's in biblical theology at Chafer Theological Seminary. He is on the deacon board and he is an assistant pastor to David Roseland at Preston City Bible Church. He was also instrumental in getting Preston City to start a good news club and he has been working lately to start a child evangelism fellowship organization for Rhode Island, just like the one that we have here for Northern Virginia. He's working on staying that up there in Rhode Island. And I think there's a possibility of several more clubs perhaps this fall. So that's very good. So please welcome Ryan Baker. I pity anyone who has to try to help me with technology. It usually doesn't go well. Well, thank you, Hal, um, and thank you, everyone, for uh, the opportunity to come and be with you. Um, I can say that it's actually a special honor for me to speak in this pulpit because I consider Pastor Ingram a, not just a friend of mine but also a, a personal mentor. When we were without a pastor uh, many years ago prior to well, when, when Pastor Ingram was uh, still in seminary, um, he would... Uh, he would faithfully come and fill our pulpit up at Preston City once or twice a month, and he would stay uh, with uh, with Katie and I. And that uh, was before we had children. We had dogs, though. And um, and he, uh, him, and I had a lot of great conversations, and we spent a lot of time together. And I tell him one of the things that he said to me years ago, and I want to say to you, um, and I never forgot this because it's been very instrumental in everything that has happened in my life since that time. He said, whenever you have a doubt on what God's will is for you, whenever there's a doubt, just serve. Just serve. Look for where the needs are and take those as opportunities to serve. I never forgot that. And, and it's been instrumental in, 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 uh, in how the Lord has worked in my life and... Um, and I hope how the Lord's working working in your life, and pass that on to uh, to our children as well. So I want to thank uh, I want to thank Bill Sen. I love uh, spending time with Bill Sen. I especially love it when we are approaching dinner, because the man can cook. Okay, the man can cook. And uh, if you haven't, 
uh, experience that, I suggest you all go over to his house this afternoon and let him cook for you. <laughs> it's great meeting Dustin and spending time with him. We went over to the uh, Smithsonian yesterday. It's a special time. I'm down here with my son. We're, we're having a daddy uh, weekend. And I uh, had an opportunity to go over to the Smithsonian and uh, the Air and Space Museum, and, uh, and, and, it's, and it's great. It's great. So um, just thank you. Thank you for, uh, for having me, or depending on how you look at it, putting up with me. In his uh, first ep- epistle uh, that we have, the Apostle John said the following, What was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which would be held and our hands handled concerning the word of life. Notice, he didn't say what we heard from someone else. He was first-hand experienced our Lord Jesus Christ. He saw him. He heard his voice. He touched him. He experienced him. It's primary uh, information that's being passed on to us by... Um, affectionately known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This isn't just hearsay. And when we read God's word, we can know for sure that it is truth because it has been passed on to us by those who saw it, heard it, and experienced it firsthand. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We saw it, we heard it, and we are proclaiming it to you. That you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. How do we have fellowship with the Apostle John? How do we have fellowship with the Apostle John? The Apostle John is not walking among us. Yet we can have fellowship with the Apostle John. Why? Because the fellowship is the Word, and the body of Christ. The same way we have fellowship with one another. We know from uh, the, uh, the, the epistle uh, of uh, the Gospel of John and also from his epistles that the way we have fellowship with one another is we must first have fellowship with our Heavenly Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, our Advocate, our Intercessor. These things we write, why? So that our joy may be made complete. Our joy may be made full. Joy. And boy, is joy missing from our uh, society today. People don't know joy because they don't know these truths. And this is the measure we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. And as I think we all know, darkness... Um, is a uh, metaphor for sin. All right, Darkness is associated with sin and judgment in the Scriptures. There is no darkness in Christ, sinless perfection. Okay, And we, uh, because of our association with Jesus Christ through His blood atonement on the cross, we don't have to walk in darkness. We have the light. We have the light. The light has come into the world, but what happens? The men, men don't comprehend it. The darkness doesn't comprehend it. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Our fellowship with one another demands, requires that we first have fellowship with our Lord. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, 
we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So first it says, don't walk in the darkness. And then it said, but if you say you have not sinned, you're a liar and the truth is not in us. Isn't this the way it works? We know that we're supposed to walk in the light. We know we have the capability of walking in the light. But we also know, what? That we're still sinners. And what happens when we sin? If we confess our sin, that word to confess literally means to agree with God. It means to be in agreement, to confess, yes, you are right. You are right that I have sinned. I am wrong and you are right and I confess that. Homo legeo means to acknowledge, to cite, to agree with a reality. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anyone here like to work out in the dirt, out in the garden? Okay. Well, well, you don't wash your hands before you work in the garden, right? You wash your hands after you work in the garden? Okay. So, so you go out in the garden with hands that are probably already dirty, but you don't necessarily see them visibly, right? But then you go out in the garden and you're working and the hands get really dirty and now it's visible, right? So when you wash your hands, you wash your hands, you're getting off all of that dirt, the visible dirt that you see that you acquired in the garden. You're also getting all the dirt that you didn't see before you went out in the garden. Okay? So sometimes we engage in sin that isn't quite so visible. All right? Like sins of the heart. Well, all sin comes, but, but sins of the tongue, sins of the mind. Sometimes we engage in gossip, or just we just want to be close enough to where the gossip is happening to where we can overhear it and enjoy it. Come on. All right, don't say you didn't. Don't say you haven't. We all have. We don't necessarily think about that. All right, but then we walk out and we do something. We do a whopper, right? We cut somebody off on the road and and, and we signal to them that, yes, I meant to do that, right? (laughs) And now all of a sudden it hits us. Okay, now I need to confess. Well, you're thinking about that, but you know what? Before you did that, you did this thing over here that you didn't recognize. That's just like going out in the garden with the dirt that was on your hands that you didn't know was there. Well, when we confess our sins, that dirt goes away too. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's the context for 1 John 1 9. We often uh, confess 1 John 1 9 or, or use 1 John 1 9 when we sin, but there's a context to this. The context is, is that the Savior has come into the world. And we know it's happened. We know it's happened because those who were with him, those who knew him best, those who walked with him, those whom were his best friends, have told us as much. The light has come into the world. And yet, we still sin. We still sin, even though the light has come into the world, and we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to. So when we do sin, we need to acknowledge what we've done and then recognize that it's been paid for. It's been paid for. And and that is the, the context of, of confession of sin. So I, I know, I'm sure it's practice here, it's practice in our church to just take a, a few moments of silent prayer uh, to agree with God that we're sinners. Agree with God that we've engaged in personal sin. Acknowledge what those sins are and recognize that it's all forgiven and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you. And we know, Father, that this is eternal life, that we may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is a quality of life that we have because of Christ. Intimacy with you, Heavenly Father. The opportunity to engage in personal interaction through prayer and through the observation of your word, which is designed to transform us in all that we think, say, and do. Thank you for our eternal hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, that our hope does not depend on anything this side of eternity, but that which has been done for us, finally and completely, we know it has been finished, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, finished the work that needed to be done to reconcile us to you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for a beautiful church family that uh, recognizes the importance of assembly. And uh, we pray that you would uh, enrich this time, that it be edifying to us all. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're like me and you look around, you see trouble, trouble in the world. You see um, uprising, you see um, lashing out. And if you're like me, you question, what is going wrong in the lives of people who are spending seemingly most, if not all, of their time trying to incite violence, trying to incite anger uh, in our streets, um, actually doing violence. What is going on? What is going on in the minds of little children or big children, uh, our teenagers? Um, We tend to throw a blanket around it and say millennials, whatever it is. What is going on? Okay, what I see, what I see is anger. And the reason there's anger is because every institution that these children have been taught to trust in have failed them, every single one of them. And they are left wondering whether or not their life has any value or any purpose. They're also left wondering who they really are. Who they really are. What is their identity? And this is what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about value and identity. Value and identity. Okay, Who are you? You ever ask yourself that question when you look in the mirror? Who, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? We have a certain amount of time on this earth. Uh, uh, Hal just announced that, that someone close to you um, just, uh, just passed away. All right, that happened to me uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a man who, who I knew years ago, who I spent a lot of time with and uh, when I was younger, died suddenly at, a, at an anniversary party. He died. He had a heart attack. I have a picture of him 10 minutes before he died, and he was fine. He looked fine, okay, and he was dead. The imminency of physical death is something that none of us can get away from. We have a certain amount of time, and we don't know when that time is going to end. We don't know when that time is going to end. So it's important, it's incumbent upon us. And if you doubt this, read Ecclesiastes. This is the words of Solomon, the most powerful king maybe who ever lived, the wealthiest king who ever lived. The guy that had it all is telling us, is telling us that if you are seeking pleasures and glory this side of, of, of eternity, you're not going to find it. The only thing in life that will ever have everlasting value is to know God fear God and keep his commands. Everything else is vanity. And it's important that we heed that instruction. So why are we here? If you could open up to Mark chapter 12 for just a moment. 
Mark chapter 12, verse 14. Scott, could you accompany him? I just, okay, thanks. Interaction with Jesus and uh, the Pharisees. Now, we can glean so much from the interactions that Jesus had, both with the Pharisees, with the religious uh, leaders, Judaizers, and also his disciples. There is so much to be learned from these interactions. But here's an interaction that, that, that is, it should never be far from our minds. They, they're trying to trap him, which they always did. Okay? And they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me, bringing me a denarius to look at? And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to, him, to, to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, the, the, what he's explaining here is there's an image on that coin, and that image has meaning, and that image requires uh, a certain amount of respect, and it requires uh, the fulfillment of certain responsibilities. Caesar's are king, and Caesar's image is on our money, and nothing's going to get bought without this money. So when you look at that coin, recognize that a portion of what you have goes to Caesar because that's the law and that's whose image is on the coin. And, and he looked and he said, and render unto God the things that are God's. And the immaturity, the spiritual immaturity of those who he was talking to is, is obvious because they didn't ask the obvious follow-up question, well, what is God's? What is God's? Well, we know from Genesis 1.26, we know exactly what belongs to God. It's you. It's you. God made man in his image, according to his likeness. His image is on every one of us. Pastor Ingram wanted me to talk about CEF, and I want to talk about CEF in just a moment. But I want to start by saying one of the things that um, I tell all the children, my own, the Good News Club kids, the Sunday school kids, any child that I come across, I want you to look at it right now. Matter of fact, I want everybody to do. Pull, take your thumb out and look at it. Take a good look at your thumb. Look at your thumb. What's your name? What is it? Copen. Look at look at your thumb. Okay. Look at, look at it. Take a look. See the design in your thumb. Do you know how many people live on the face of the earth right now? Take a guess. How many people on the face of the earth right now? About seven billion. Seven billion people on the face of the earth. Guess how many of them have the exact same thumbprint as you? That's right. Nobody. Nobody. Why? Because you were created special. You were created special and unique and for a specific purpose. How many kids are being told this today? Why are kids angry? Because they don't know that their life has any value whatsoever. But when you look at your thumbprint and, it, and you realize that God created you unique and special in His image, you realize that your life has value. Now that doesn't get you to the cross. 
It doesn't get you to the cross, okay? But it does get you somewhere. It does get you somewhere. It gets you to the point where you realize your life has value. Your life has value. It might get you to the point where you would wonder why God would you send your son to die on the cross for me? That might be a question that you get from one of these children. Why would, why would God send his son to die for me? Because he created you in his image, unique and special. That's why. That's why he loves you. That's the basis of his love for you, is that you're his creation. And that's value. That's where value comes from. His image is on us. But that's not, that's not what is being told, that's not what's being understood today. And as a result, people are looking for value and purpose in other things. Social status. Celebrity ship. Do we not have a culture of celebrity ship? Everybody wants to be noticed. Everybody thinks that because they have a thought that it's important that the rest of the world knows that thought. Or financial status. Or family. I mean, I'm a family man. I have two children. Okay? But is that what gives my life meaning and purpose? Is it? If it is, and God forbid the Lord ever took my children away from me, I would have no meaning and purpose. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Uh, Social status. Occupation. Whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. We have an entire society that's looking for value, meaning, and purpose in these other things. And you know what? They always fail us. They always fail fail us. And that's not where our value and purpose comes. Our value and purpose is very clear. It comes from Genesis one twenty six, That God made us in His image according to His likeness. That's our value and purpose. Now I said I wanted to talk about identity. The problem with identity at this point is we're identified with sin and death prior to entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So Genesis 1.26 gets us to value, but it doesn't get us to identity. It gets us to value, but it doesn't get us to identity. Our identity can be explained in two words. From the moment that we enter into a personal relationship, a, salv- a, a, a saving faith, where we acknowledge not just that the cross happened. This is a big mistake that we make sometimes in evangelism. We're not trying to get... We're not trying to do anything, right? It's God doing it through us. But work with me here, okay? The goal is not to get the unbeliever to the point where they accept that the cross happened. The goal is to get them to understand that the cross happened for them, personally. Not just for the masses. That Jesus Christ died for you personally. He had you in mind when he went to the cross, when he bore our sins. He had you in mind. From that point, our identity becomes very simple. Two words, in Christ. In Christ. Read through the New Testament epistles and count how many times you hear Paul use the words, in Christ. It is a technical term for our identity. It is a technical term for our identity. So our value and our worth is based on the fact that we were created by a loving, omniscient, omnipotent, loving God 
in his image for the purpose for which he has designed us for. This is true of every human being who has ever lived, and you can walk up to any human being, any race, any ethnic background, any, any locale, doesn't matter, and you can tell them that their life has worth. You can tell them their life has worth, and you can tell them that their life has value. But you can also tell them that they are misidentifying themselves. They're misidentifying themselves because they have a Savior who, because their life has worth and value, died on the cross for them. We have an identity crisis in this country and all over the world and in Christian circles because I'll tell you what, if, if, if we live our lives conforming to the world with the world's priorities... We may be a Christian, but we're living in functional atheism. I will use that term. Functional atheism. Because whereas we may be saved, we are conforming our lives and adopting the priorities of the world. And therefore, we have an identity crisis because we have forgotten what our identity is. Romans 6 if you could open up to Romans 6. Now those who know the context of Romans, there's a structure to the book of Romans. Some call it the, the systematic theology of the Bible is the book of Romans. To some extent, Galatians. Now Galatians was the first letter that Paul wrote, I think. There's debate about that. Some will say it depends on what part of Galatia they're talking about. Is it Southern Galatia? There's a debate, but let, I, I don't know where Pastor Ingram comes down on this. I think Galatians is the first letter that Paul wrote. Is that what Pastor Ingram would say? Is that what? Or, or does he say First Thessalonians? He says Galatians. Oh, good. That means you'll see me up here for second hour. All right. Um, but uh, Romans is really where where uh, Paul really kind of brings it all together, doesn't he? Well, Romans five through eight, we would call this the uh, particularly Romans six through eight, we would call this the sanctification portion of the book of Romans, the sanctification portion of the book of Romans, where Paul isn't necessarily talking anymore about justification, meaning that, 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 that point where one transitions from the Romans 1 person. Now, I think Romans 1 I, uh, applies to believers as well. Those They knew God, but they, but they didn't honor God. Believers do that, okay? So I'm not one that's going to say, well, Romans 1 is talking about unbelievers. But he is making the flow, making the explanation of the process that we all go through. All right, from from death into life, and then once we enter into that relationship with Christ, then what? Okay, the 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 experiential sanctification, some might call it, uh, our walk, our Christian walk, uh, that's heavily discussed in Romans chapter six. Um, so I say that because we're not talking about getting saved in Romans chapter six. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about as. Paul said in Philippians, working out our salvation. You familiar with that? Romans, Romans uh, uh, 2, 12, and 13, work out 
your salvation with fear and trembling. It's the working out of it. It's the manifestation of it. It's the, it's the outpouring of, of, of who we are in Christ. So Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, into Christ, have been baptized into His death? Okay, what was, what was nailed to the cross? What was nailed to the cross was our sins. Okay, Jesus Christ bore our sins. Our old self, you know, Paul always talks about this, the old self and the new self, right? The old man and the new man. That was the old man. That's identity. That's who we, that's, that was our identity before Christ, the old man. That's who we were. Still valuable. Don't throw value in the same bucket with identity. All right? They're two different things, value and identity. Every life has value. Why do I, why do I emphasize this point? Because I'm going to recommend that I was talking to, to, to Bill about this yesterday. Um, Check out, uh, you can YouTube it or get our book, uh, uh, The uh, Secret, Conve- Secret Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. Anyone heard about this woman? Uh, Rosary Butterfield? Okay. Um, well, I- I'm going to recommend her to you. Okay. She has an amazing journey. She was um, a lesbian, and she was a leader in the LBGT community. She was a professor of literature. All right, you see where I'm going with this? All right. And and who comes on to campus but the promise keepers? And part of this group that came on campus was a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor. And the Presbyterian pastor met this woman and uh and talked to her and then wrote her a letter. Wrote her a letter. And and in that letter, uh he uh started the process of pursuing a friendship with her. All right, um, unlikely friendship, and she tells this story. She got that letter, she read it, she crumbled it up, threw it in the trash. What's this? He wants me to consider reading the Bible. What is this? But then she thought about it, and and she said, you know, in the letter, he said, well, why would you not read it? You're a you're a literature professor, and it's the most well read and famous book that's ever been written. And she went to the wastebasket and uncrumpled the letter and read it. The next thing she knows, she got a phone call and an invite to dinner with the pastor and his wife. And she said, it started the process of a friendship. And she said, he, he didn't hammer me, he didn't judge me, he just was my friend. Well, she, he continued to encourage her to read the Bible. She read the Bible seven times before she accepted Christ. She is now the wife of an evangelical Christian pastor, okay, and uh, nearest I can tell from everything she says, and it's partly because of her English background, she is very strong in uh, in hermeneutics and, uh, and and Bible interpretation. Very a biblical literalist, very very strong. But it was a process. Why do I say this? Because the one thing she says is the professor never looked at me and dehumanized me because of my lifestyle. All right, I mean the the pastor who who befriended her. He recognized that her life had value. Her life had value. But she was, she had an identity crisis. She didn't know her Savior. 
But that doesn't mean we dehumanize people. When we see what goes on on the college campuses, what's our instinct? What's our instinct? Our instinct is to just say, why can't all these people just go bleep? Okay? Don't look at it that way. These people are lost. And these people, were every one of them were created in the image of God. And every single one of them has value. Every single one of them. And we have to reach these people. We have to reach these people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're never going to reach these people by disregarding them or dehumanizing them or uh, convincing ourselves that they don't matter. They do matter. They do matter. Um, And so reaching these people is important. And that's what Jesus did. That's the example that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because these people are lost and they need to know their Savior. Um, So continuing on. Uh, in Romans 6. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united, that word united is the Greek word sumphutos, and it means to be identified with, to be one with. To be identified with, to be one with. Our union, our identification with Christ is based on his death on our behalf, resulting in our old self being dead and our being made new in Christ. We have now been identified with Christ. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin you know the unbeliever is dead in their trespasses and sins you ever try to you ever try to have a have have an interaction with a dead person okay they're dead in their trespasses and sins we can't go in and talk to them about changing their lifestyle we can't do that it's it's they're dead they're dead and they're slaves you see Paul makes this distinction in Romans between being slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Either way, we're slaves. And this is the big misunderstanding with Christianity today. One of the big misunderstandings is this idea, well, we're trapped. We're trapped. Yes, we're, yeah, the same way that a young child is trapped in his mama's arms. Okay? The same way a baby is trapped in his mama's arms when that baby needs to nurse. That's what we're trapped. We're trapped in righteousness. We're slaves to righteousness. The unbeliever is slaves to sin and death. We can't change the lifestyle of the unbeliever. We can't attempt to do that. They have to be made new. They have to be converted. They have to, they have, to have the new man. And that can only come when they accept the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It can only come that way. So, Picking apart one's lifestyle, no matter how horrible it is, and some of them are horrible, all right, we can't make that the issue. The issue has to be the cross. It must be the cross first. And then once they've been made new, and once they have now identified with Christ, and their old self has been crucified, their old self has been done away with, now they're free to walk in newness of life. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. 
knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's now our identity. Identity relates to life, doesn't it? Dead people don't walk around wondering what their identity is. Living people are concerned about identity. Okay, So, we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is our identity, in Christ. Everything is associated with our identity in Christ. The purpose of our lives, what we think about when we wake up in the morning, how we arrange our lives, how we approach our lives, how we approach our interactions, the emphasis that we place on, on, on the things that we do in life all have to be related to our identity in Christ. Otherwise, what are we doing? We're conforming to the world. And we know that the Lord says, do not be of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. By the way, how come in 1 John, it says, God says, don't love the world or the things in the world, but in John 3.16, he says, for God so loved the world. Because on the one hand, he's talking about the system. On the other hand, he's talking about people. We're not to be lovers of the world, 1 John 2, but we are to be lovers of the people that God has put in the world following his example. There's a distinction there. There's a distinction between systems and system. By systems, I mean really thoughts and ideas. Don't love the thoughts and ideas of the world. First John 2. Don't love the thoughts and ideas of the world. But John 3.16 is actually where love is defined. See, we go to 1 Corinthians 13 to define love. You know, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't count a wrong suffered. Those are, those are, the, those are the, uh, the, the, the results of love. Those are what love looks like, the manifestation of love. But that's not where love is defined, I don't believe, in the Scriptures. Love is defined in the Scriptures by John 3.16, and I want to show you how. Okay? There's a thought that comes first. For God so loved the world. God had a thought that he loved his creation. All right, It all starts in our minds. There's a priority that God placed on us. That priority resulted in an action. That he gave. That he gave. Okay, It was a thought followed by an action. For God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. He gave his only begotten Son... Was there a sacrifice involved there? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Philippians 2. What does Philippians 2 say? For have this thinking in you which was in Christ Jesus, who though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming to earth in the likeness of man. And having been found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. That required sacrifice. That required acting in the best interest of someone else to their benefit. That's love. That's love right there. Anyone says, how do you define love? Don't say, well, you can't define love. Yes, you can. God does it. God does it. It's a thought, a priority that is placed from the brain waves in your head, which is actually in your heart, 
in your heart, the thinking part of man, Proverbs 4.23, I talk about this verse all the time with at least one person in this room. Proverbs 4.23, you know what it says? Guard your heart above all things, for from it flows everything in your life. If your heart is properly calibrated to the priorities of God, the right things will flow from it. If your heart is calibrated to the reality that the person that you're talking to is valuable, has value as assigned by God in Genesis 1, then you will recognize that it's incumbent upon you to love that person. To love that person. It's incumbent upon us to be imitators of God and therefore walk in love, Ephesians 5 or 4. Be imitators of God, my fellow children, and walk in love. We're to be imitators of God. John 3.16, that's our pattern. That's our pattern. For God so loved the world that he gave. Don't stop with the thought. This is what a lot of us do. Yes, I love that person. And you know what I'm going to do about it? Absolutely not a single thing. No, it actually requires us to be a little uncomfortable sometimes. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Uh, um, what is it, Daniel? Philippians 2. Do you remember? I'm glad he's here because I blanked out. <laughs> Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard the needs of others above yourself. That love requires that. Love requires that. So when we're thinking about, do I really want to talk to this person about my faith? Yeah, I love this person. Yeah, I know if this person died in five minutes, he's probably going to hell, but I don't really want to talk to this person. Because you know why? This person might reject me. This person might get mad at me. Okay? I have some place I need to be. Um, I, I have an appointment uh, with my phone so I can text somebody uh, because they're going to text me back. And then after that, uh, there's my favorite television program on. And I know our lives aren't. I know that that's not our lives. But in some cases it is, right? Sometimes we'd rather look at our phone than look at somebody else. Okay? But you see, we're not living out the priorities of God as it relates to our identity in Christ. That's the problem with that. That's the problem with that. It requires us to sacrifice what we would otherwise rather be doing. I think God the Father would have rather not sacrificed His Son. I think. I think that our Lord would have rather not had it be necessary that He do this. And if you question me on that, check out the interaction between Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was agony, agony, not because of the physical pain that he was about to endure, because of the spiritual separation for the first time in all of eternity. We have no idea what that would be like. No idea what that would be like, the spiritual separation. But it was necessary. He did it because he loved us. For God so loved the world. He gives his reason right there. He, that's why it doesn't, John 3.16 doesn't just say, For God gave his Son that whosoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. He explains his reason. God so loved the world. That's why he did it. And that's the pattern that we are to walk after. That's, that's our example. We're to be imitators of that and walking in love. Uh, so the old man 
or the old self refers to the person before we were identified in Christ, with Christ. Before that was our identity. That's the old person. That person was crucified with Christ. Colossians 3.9 That person is now dead. That person is now dead. Was crucified. Died on the cross. It's gone. Forever. Your old self, gone forever. You're no longer slaves to sin. You're no longer slaves to unrighteousness. You're no longer slaves to the priorities of the flesh. He no longer exists as he once was. Nevertheless, we can still live like the old man is still alive. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine a man who serves in prison for a crime he committed. All right, he serves his time in prison. Let's say he does 10 years. And, uh, you know, let's, I don't know what they're wearing today, but let's imagine he's wearing an orange jumpsuit. And he's got shackles on his hands and around his ankles. He's got shackles. Okay? All right? Now, he's been freed. He's been freed. They give him back his wallet. They give him back his tie clip. They give him back his contents. And they open the prison doors. And he walks out, still in the shackles and in the orange jumpsuit. And he's walking down the street, a free man. But what's he walking in? Shackles and an orange jumpsuit. When we live according to the flesh, that's what we're doing. We can take them off. They've been taken off. The, the guys, hey, you want me to take those off? No, no, no. I, th- I like it. I like the way it feels. It's comfortable. It's comfortable. The orange jumpsuit is comfortable. And the guy says, you sure? You want to go out? Yeah, I, this is just the way I want to go out. Just like this. Well, how, 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 no, I, I'm just, I'm comfortable. All right? Like a dog, you know, returns to his own vomit. All right? That's when we live like the old self, we live like the prisoner who doesn't want to take off the orange jumpsuit and the shackles. He's still identifying with himself in prison when he was a slave to the prison when he couldn't walk out of the prison doors. Now, we've walked out of the prison doors. We're no longer slaves, but we still act like we're imprisoned. That's what happens when the new man puts on the old self. At the moment of salvation, we take on a new identity. In Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 6 goes on, uh, Romans 6, 5, uh, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. We're free from it. It doesn't mean we don't do it. First John 1, 8. Right, First John 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. There is a difference, though, between engaging in personal sin and loving it and living a lifestyle of it and enjoying it. All right? We know we commit sin. First John 1 John 1.8 says that. But when we identify ourselves with our sinful lifestyles and we say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... It's comfortable. Like the orange jumpsuit is comfortable. Okay, <laughs> we're back in the old self. So, now if we had died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. 
Therefore, no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus in God. It all relates to identity. It's all about identity. Why do we not do this? Why do we not engage in this? Why do we say no to this? On the flip side, why do we say yes to this? Why, why, would, we, why would we give up uh, a vacation to go on a missions trip to some place in the third world? To, and it doesn't have to even be that dramatic. Okay? Why would we take the time to engage in conversation with this person who I have absolutely nothing in common with, but I want to sit down and talk to him about my faith. Why would we do that? Because my identity is Christ. Because my priorities are Christ. Because even though, yeah, maybe I don't feel like doing this, I remember who I am. When we're walking through an airport, when we're sitting in a restaurant, when we're walking in the store, when we're we're working with the cashier at Walmart, or when we're interacting with our own family, and we don't like it, and we're not comfortable with it, what snaps us back is remember who you are. You ever say that to your child? Remember who you are. Remember where you came from. You ever say that? Yeah. Remember, remember what I taught you. Remember where you came from. You snap back to our identity. Who, who are you? Who are you? You are in Christ. That is your identity. All right? And that's what drives everything that we do. That's, that's, that's what the standard is. It's Christ. And so, yeah, we may not want to do it, but we do it because we remember who we are. And uh, and so, um, I think now is the time we need to stop, right? Uh, okay, yeah, is that right? Okay, um, let me say a quick closing prayer, and then we'll break. Break. Okay, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of your Word uh, being in our hearts and uh, and for our identity in Christ, Heavenly Father. Uh, we know who we are. We know who we serve. We pray, Father, that you guide and direct us that we may live out our salvation as you have commanded us to. In Christ's name, amen.